So we're back in Proverbs. Last week we were in Proverbs 24 and 25. And chapter 24 completed what we were talking about, the sayings of the wise, this collection of sayings. There's a few different authors in Proverbs that we've talked about. And that was kind of the end of that section. One of the topics that we also talked about was envy and how destructive envy can be, how it can stunt our growth. And we talked about trials and adversity. We talked about honey. You know, honey is brought up a few times in the book of Proverbs and what that symbolizes and talked about the sweetness of his favor. How, and, and also there's that interesting proverb that says, don't eat too much of it, basically. And how something good can become something bad. How taking God's glory to ourselves can actually make us sick. We observe the house of the sluggard. Talked about those weeds and the broken walls and, and, and what that symbolized. And finally, we talked about how to act in the presence of royalty. That proverb where it says, don't, don't try to look for the best seat in the house all the time. Don't always try to promote yourself, but lower yourself so that God can raise you up. Tonight, we're going to be in Proverbs 26 and 27. Again, a lot of familiar themes. And um, as we go through these, we'll see all these similarities, but we'll take each one as it comes. And uh, I'll start in Proverbs 26. And this is going to be a long passage, 12 verses that I'm going to read. So hopefully we can make it through 12. That's a lot of reading. It's like my whole page. Um, and, but I will summarize it real quick. These, the reason these are all grouped together, this is like the description of a fool. And we've talked about the fool before, right? It's one of these characters within Proverbs. There's the simple that we talked about. The simple is kind of this neutral guy, and he's easily, or person, I want to say, easily influenced, but not really on one side or the other, but just really in danger of falling away from the truth because of that. We have the fool that has rejected God, that doesn't want to hear what God has to say. He's going his own way. And then we have the wicked, which is kind of a progression of that that gets into, I'm an enemy of God now. I hate God's people. I hate God's word. Not, on, not only am I going my own way, but I'm okay if you go your way. I hate your way. The, that, that's kind of that progression, the simple, the fool, and the wicked. But this is a, a description that Solomon writes of the fool. So I'll begin in verse 1. Like snow in summer or rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. We'll talk about that apparent contradiction a little bit too. Whoever sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his own feet and drinks violence. Like a lame man's legs which hang useless is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like one who binds the stone in the sling is one who gives honor to a fool. Like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. 
like an archer who wounds everyone, is one who hires a passing fool or drunkard. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than him. So that's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of stuff about the fool. It's just this takedown, one thing after another. And it really rounds out this whole picture. So the fool, who is a fool? So biblically, like we talked about, it's one who has dispensed with God's word. Really, that's, that's it. Who lives by their own gospel, their own self-contrived system or belief. Psalm 14.1, and this is, this is really interesting. This is two psalms, and it says it exactly the same. It's in Psalms 14.1 and in Psalm 51, excuse me, 53.1. And it speaks of a fool like this. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So that's the biblical definition of this fool that we're talking about. Simply one who starts out with that pr premise, that assumption, there is no God. Is there anybody in like our society today that would fall, uh, excuse me, fit that description? I mean, there's a lot of people, right? So there is no God. That's where it starts. We talked about wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Not only do I believe there is a God, but I believe there's a God that's sovereign and powerful and is able to do whatever he wants. And because of that, I submit to him and I, and I trust my life to him. That's the difference. But when one believes there is no God, it opens the door to all manner of belief and behaviors. Much of wit, which, as we described here, is inappropriate that thing where it says it's like snow in the time of harvest. It's talking about something that's just unnatural, right? It's at the wrong time in the wrong place. It's inappropriate, damaging, and disgusting. That last one, this is one that my dad used to tell me all the time about myself. You're like a dog that goes back to his vomit. <laughs> it was one of his favorite ones. It was this graphic thing, and he was right. That's how I lived my life for a long time disgusting. But I would say this belief, that belief, there is no God. Think about what that has spawned in our world over the centuries. It's given rise to Marxism, the communist revolutions in China and Russia, which millions and millions and millions of people were murdered. We might remember Pol Pot and the communist Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. Again, this one of the worst genocides in history. And it started with that. There is no God. Nazi Germany and numerous other oppressive and evil regimes. And that's kind of what we see in world history. But it's also caused untold broken marriages, wasted lives, millions of abortions, and so many other abominable deeds, like it says. When you start with that premise, it opens the door to every other type of evil. This word for fool in Proverbs is kasil. That, I think that's roughly how it's pronounced in Hebrew. And it's, it's a word that's used exclusively in Proverbs and, and Ecclesiastes and just a few, time, uh, few times in Psalms. 
And it's more of, think of like a caricature of a fool, a caricature of a fool, a stupid person. And it literally means something like thick-headed, fat-headed. We've heard that before. Now, the word that we looked at in Psalms is basically a synonym, but it's the word nabal, N-A-B-A-L, nabal. And that brings in this, this more of a descriptive type, as, as opposed to being a caricature, it's more of this description of someone who's impious, vile, and unbelieving. Again, these words are used, they're, they're very, very similar in terms of their use. But the reason I wanted to get into that word in Psalms is because in 1 Samuel, there was a man named Nabal. Does anybody remember that? This man is named this word for fool. And he is the epitome of a fool in this sense that we just read about. And I love how the Bible, how the scripture, they record these certain people that really epitomize some of these traits. Nabal was rich. He had massive herds and assets. And he had a beautiful wife named Abigail. This is a time when David was in the wilderness. He was still on the run from Saul. He was in rebellion to Saul. Saul not of David's own choice, but Saul had attempted to kill him. Saul was threatened by David's ascendancy to his throne. And he was kind of, he was on the run. And while they were out in the field, David and his men had been kind to Nabal's servants. They had protected Nabal's livestock and his belongings. And one day, David and his men are in need, and David sends a messenger to Nabal and says, hey, we've, we've taken care of your livestock while, while we're out in the field. Our men have been kind to you. They haven't hurt you. They've protected your servants. We could really use some food and provisions right now. And this is how Nabal responds to that. He says, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So that's Nabal's response to David's request. Now, Nabal, in his foolish pride, he didn't fear David nor the Lord. Remember, David is hanging out in the wilderness with the mighty men, these guys that were some of the most renowned warriors in the land. They were a very um, powerful bunch of guys. He doesn't fear David. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't fear David's men. He didn't believe the prophecies of David's kingdom and rule. See, David had already been anointed by Samuel to be king. There were people within the kingdom that believed that David would someday ascend to the throne, and Abigail, Nabal's wife, was one of those people, but not Nabal. He only saw David as a slave, not a king, a rebel and failure, not God's anointed, which is how the prideful, hypocritical religious leaders saw Jesus in their day. Remember that? Said, who, who is this guy, the son of Joseph, the son of Mary, the carpenter's son? He's nobody. And that's how they view Jesus, and that's how much of the world sees Jesus today. Yeah, he might have been a good teacher. He might have had some decent things to say. But really, he got crucified because he kind of ticked off the Romans and he was a rebel and they try to craft this, this idea about Jesus. They don't see him as God's anointed. They don't see him as the Messiah like we do. When David gets that message from Nabal, he is enraged and he vows to destroy Nabal 
and all he owns. And you picture David's like putting on his armor, he's getting his sword on, he's getting everybody ready to go, and they're going to go wipe him out. He says not one person of his whole clan is going to remain alive in the morning. And that's how David was really, really upset about that, enraged. Yet Abigail intervenes. She arrives with provisions. She humbles herself. She pleads with David, and she reminds him of the Lord's favor. The Lord's promises to him. She's, this is what um, Abigail says in 1 Samuel 25, 28. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord, see she calls David my Lord, she will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. And what a great confession. And Abigail, really, she saves the day. David heeds her advice and um, doesn't go after Nabal. He spares him. Ironically, that night, you know, Nabal is, is hanging out in his mansion. He gets drunk. And he's sitting down. He's feasting. He's having a great time, and he finds out what his wife has done, and he falls down dead. And, and it's just one of these things where you just see it. So compare him to Abigail. Abigail's name is whose father is exaltation. And it's this idea of praising God, of being in fellowship with God, of exalting in God. And her faith, fear, reverence, and wisdom preserved her and her household. In her fear of the Lord, she intercedes. She takes blame upon herself. At one point in that story, if you read that story, she says, basically, I'm really sorry I wasn't there. I didn't see your men come. If, you, if I would have seen them, I would have done differently. And that's, so she basically takes blame upon herself, and she brings offerings and seeks reconciliation. That's what we're supposed to do as a child of God, to intercede, to admit our own faults, to bring offerings, to seek that reconciliation. If you compare that with Nabal, the fool, his rash words and unbelief nearly caused the slaughter of all his household and all he had entrusted in. I think it's interesting, this was Solomon's dad that this happened to, if you think about that. So I wonder... If Solomon ever envisioned Nabal when he was writing about the fool here in Proverbs. If this guy, maybe they had talked about him and talked about his actions and remembered just that, that story as a kid. He may have heard that. But look, so all those descriptions that we talked about, is that still up there? That slide? Yeah, all those descriptions that we talk about, compare that to Nabal's life. He was a man whose curse did not alight. Remember, he's kind of cursing at David in in a sense. He's a man who sent inflammatory messages, whose wit and wisdom were like arrows or thorns, a man tragically wise in his own eyes and who deserved a rod for his back. And his words almost literally got him that from David. Only by David's mercy was he spared. Nabal was a man who apparently had everything. He was from a good family. Nabal was from the tribe, from the family of Caleb, 
one of the heroes of the promised land, one of the two faithful spies. He was, again, that would have been an elevated lineage for this guy. He was from a good family. He had a good family name, if you will. He was a hero, again, of the conquest of Canaan. He was rich. He was prosperous. He had a beautiful wife, servants, a sprawling estate. But he died a drunk, probably with food in his mouth. And the very man he disdained and ridiculed took his wife and made her his own. I mean, is there any greater shame than that? Again, he died. This guy that he's calling a slave and a servant and a rebel and all this stuff, David ended up, took Abigail as his wife, probably as a mercy to her to help her out. There are many Nabals in our world today, and they seem to be the ones getting all the accolades. I want to be like Abigail, to have that faith, to fear God, to honor the Davids that we see in our life. Those anointed of the, word of the Lord, humble servants who are called according to his will. And ultimately, not just the Davids, the son of David, Jesus Christ. So let's move on to Proverbs 26, 13 through 17. And we just can't get away from the sluggard. It's like every week we're talking about the sluggards. But the sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's just this, this wild excuse to be lazy, to not work. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard in his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. So again, we see this sluggard. We're not going to spend a ton of time, but he's making excuses. He's living in fear and drama. You ever know somebody like that that's always, just always got some crazy drama going on in their life and then they use that as like this excuse to be this way or that way and this really vivid picture of him turning like a door in his bed and we just picture you know going from side to side and just like this this is very you know too lazy to even feed himself and this last verse I think I think speaks not just of minding our own business that's kind of the idea right the one who meddles in someone else's business but I think it's related to this very sluggard we talked about that verse before about putting up security for others, for guaranteeing others' debts and this type of thing. I think this is the kind of person that that's talking about. We have that proverb in our culture that says, let sleeping dogs lie. Has anybody ever heard that? Let that guy work it out on his own is that kind of thing. This isn't the kind of person that you want to be involved with, essentially. Um, you know, my dogs, I love to play, and I'll kind of hold them by their ears and play with them and all that, but they love me. I love them. I'm not going to do that to your dog or a stranger dog. Oftentimes, that's the worst thing you could do, you know. Um, anyway, they would t- they not, a lot of dogs would not take that well if they don't know you. That's the point. So let's move down to Proverbs 26, 18 through 22. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisper or quarreling ceases. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, 
so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. So here we see the heat of division, the destructive fire of gossip and strife. And these perversely delicious secrets that descend into our darkest and worst parts. Those deep, dark waters, those deep, dark things in our hearts that harbor all manner of sin and deception. And we compare that opposed to the clear, refreshing waters of truth and unity. We're talking about those things that, that, we, that we swallow down, that make us you know, satisfied for a moment, but eventually will have an adverse effect on our digestion. James 3.5, it's that same, there's this, in, there's this interesting metaphor that the, this used here about like this fire, right? This fire, this unquenchable um, strife. And James 3.5 also compares our untamable tongues to that of a wildfire. And this is what it says. So also the tongue is a small member Yet it boasts great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. And it's just, again, that really graphic description that James is giving us of the damage that our words can do, our tongues can do. And we know that the greatest forest can be destroyed by a single match. A single discarded cigarette butt could wipe out the redwoods. Even a single floating ember from a campfire could start this massive wildfire. Likewise, we can set ablaze the most cherished relationships. We can create an inferno of strife and pain and burn up whatever good work God intends with a simple word. Has that ever happened to anybody in here? Have you heard something? Have you said something that just really tears you up inside, that really just burns up whatever level of trust or love you have for that person for the moment? A misplaced trust, a voiced opinion, if left unchecked, can level even the most flourishing fellowship. This is something that can really get out of hand in a, in a church, in a family, in a marriage. And we're told to extinguish these types of fires with honesty and openness. That's really what it takes, isn't it? Honesty and openness. And I'm not saying we're, you don't say every, some people think, that being honest is saying every cruel thing that pops into your head. Well, I'm just saying what's on my mind. I mean, that's not, that's not the kind of honest. There is a time for discretion. You know, I know someone like that that's like, well, that's, it's the truth. Well, again, the, the truth in love, the truth in its right application. Sometimes truth can be a weapon used to hurt somebody. That's not what we're talking about. But to extinguish fires with that cool, refreshing water of honesty and openness and vulnerability by removing the wood, suffocating the fuel that may cause things to ignite. I think of, uh, he's not here tonight, but Eric Moore. Everybody know Eric Moore? He runs a 
heavy equipment company, and one of the main things he does with that heavy equipment is travel all over the country and create these massive fire breaks that just eliminate all the fuel in this area so when the fuel comes to so when the fire comes to a certain point it stops that's what we're supposed to do create those fire breaks if we can i think of wildland firefighters who dig trenches and fell trees oftentimes within just a few yards of the fire I've seen pictures of these guys, there's a massive wall of flame, and they're, they're not that far away, and they're just digging, 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 cutting down trees, making way, making um, a space so that fire will stop. It can be hard work. Has anybody ever known a wildland firefighter? I mean, that is a grungy, hard, hard job. They are out in the field for days. Sometimes this process is hard to create that fire break. It's difficult. We may even have to put ourselves at risk to save those in harm's way. You know, cutting down those trees, I picture having to give up something that's important to you to make peace with somebody. The easiest thing to do, though, is to practice good fire safety in the first place, to watch what we say and who we say it to. Again, to have that discretion. There's things that I can confess to certain people. There's things that I can confess to other people. (laughs) Sometimes, you know, we have to have discretion who we're dealing with, who we're talking about, how they're going to take that. And that takes a relationship to know that. I'm not saying be deceptive, but I hope you get the context there. To create that fire break, to watch what we say and who we say it to, positively or negatively. This next, cha- uh, this next verse, Proverbs 26, verse 27. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. And that seems very common sense. I love these Proverbs that are just very common sense, very cause and effect. And it goes along with that previous passage, I think. Don't think that by starting a fire you won't get burned. Again, that's one of our cultural proverbs that we have. You know, whoever plays with matches is going to get burned kind of thing, right? Don't think that by rolling a stone on someone else, you won't get crushed. Or by digging a trap, you won't end up in a hole. Galatians 6-7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So if we're looking to attack one another, to trap one another, we're bound to be attacked and trapped ourselves. It's in looking to free one another, to forgive one another, we'll find freedom and forgiveness for ourselves. So be careful when you start digging that pit. That rolling a stone, that's how they used to defend their fortresses. They used to have these stones and they would just roll them down the hill into the troops. That's kind of the the idea here not just rolling it for no reason. It's rolling it to hurt somebody. That's the idea. Same with digging that pit. That's, you know, think of like the old um, tiger uh, traps that they used to try to dig and then put branches on top of it. And anyway, that's the idea there. If we're looking to set traps for people, set attacks for people, usually to make ourselves feel better or to gain some sort of advantage, don't think that that's not going to affect yourself. Proverbs 27, 1 and 2. Moving down. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Let another praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. 
So here's this warning against boasting in our plans and praising ourselves. Does that first part sound familiar to anybody? Don't boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. It's something that the Apostle James talks about, and he says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, your boast is, your, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. See how that kind of dovetails with that, matches up with that proverb. And I'm sure the Apostle James had that proverb in mind in writing this. But it's basically saying failing to consider our limited abilities. And I think for myself, my tendency to act on selfish and ungodly motives. That's really the idea there too, right? He's talking about making a profit. That sounds good. That'll benefit me. Hmm, that must be God's plan for me because God loves me and wants me to prosper, right? So I'm going to go do this thing. I'm going to do that thing. That's what he's saying. It can cause us to get ahead of ourselves and ahead of God's will. This is not an admonition to not have an investment strategy or to make plans for your life. Some people would take that to the whole other extreme and say, I'm just going to let whatever happens, happens. I'm going to buy whatever I want, spend whatever I want. That's not what this is saying. What it's saying is, is to consider God in everything we do. To consider everything in the light of his word and deferring always to his revealed will. This is something that I've also probably been guilty of. It's not an admonition to add God willing to everything that you want to do. You know, <laughs> I'm going to go do this thing, God willing. You know, like it's this superstitious suffix that you put on all your bad plans. That's not what this is. Like, you can get into that too. I really want to do this thing, and I really hope it works out, God willing. You know, so be careful about that. You know, it can become this crazy kind of superstitious ritual that we can get into. Again, to take all these plans, to take our purposes to God's word and see how they match up before we make a move. This last one is hard too, basically saying to shut up about ourselves and let his name do the talking. And we spoke a couple studies ago about the good name. What's our name associated with? If our name is associated with Christ and our witness is intact, that name will speak for us. We don't have to go out and do the talking for ourselves. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. And this is a great one. I really love this proverb. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Profuse means a lot, like over the top. It speaks of being real and genuine as opposed to being manipulative and deceitful. And when I read this, the first thing that popped into my head when I was thinking about this is the, the contrast between the Apostle Peter and Judas. Peter was rebuked by Jesus numerous times in Scripture. Remember that? He was rebuked numerous times. 
I don't ever see anywhere where Judas was rebuked by Jesus. And it speaks of this distance, I think. I think Peter was close enough to Jesus and was willing to ask questions and engage and, and, and be willing to get shot down here and there. But he was also praised by Jesus. I don't see G- Judas having that type of ongoing relationship throughout the, the Gospels. Even though Peter was wounded, rebuked, he also found restoration and grace. Jesus coming back on the beach that morning after his resurrection and making a point to restore Peter, to forgive Peter, to give Peter hope. So we see both ends of that, right? That open rebuke, but also that great, that great friendship that, that Jesus had with Peter. We also see Judas betrayed Jesus in the garden with a kiss. I don't ever recall Peter kissing Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Matter of fact, when Peter, Peter's the one that when Jesus came to wash Peter's feet, he didn't, even, he didn't want any of that. But Judas per, um, betrayed Jesus in the garden specifically with a kiss and became an enemy of the Lord as well as the other disciples. I think that's something that we forget sometimes. He was alienated from all, all these guys he had lived with for years and years and years. All those relationships were just gone. And he became an enemy of all those people. He gave up all that, all that. But he was the one that was profuse with his kisses. Sometimes the truest and most valued relationships can also bring us the most pain, but they also bring us the greatest fruit. This next verse talks about that, I think. Proverbs 27, 17. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Now, to me, this brings up images of sparks flying, of clashing swords and training together, and not necessarily sharpening an iron implement. Now, if you're a knife guy like me, is there any knife people in here? Anybody, like, collect knives into knives? I am. That's why I have a Band-Aid on my pinky. (laughs) So if you're a knife guy, you know that we usually sharpen knives with a stone, not another knife. You don't grab your other knife and start trying to sharpen your knife with it. So it's kind of an enigmatic idea. Um, Now, most of our knives today are steel, and depending on the alloy, has different hardnesses. And all steel contains some degree of iron in it. I can sharpen my axe with a file that is also steel. so, So the proverb does hold up in that way. It's different hardnesses of that material, right? Ron, are you hear what I'm talking about? I can sometimes, I have an axe that I have to sharpen with a file, and it works great. I also use a stone on that. And some of you may even use a sharpening steel for your cooking knives. You've seen like Gordon Ramsay doing that, both steel. One's harder than the other. That's why it's able to sharpen the one. This proverb is essentially about benefiting from fellowship and making each other better even when it's hard. That's the idea here. Iron sharpening iron, that's a, could be, there's friction there. There's conflict there sometimes. There's different opinions, just like there's different hardnesses in these different metals. But it's by working that stuff out that we strengthen one another and gain fellowship with one another. The other thing that's really interesting is no knife or sword 
can sharpen itself. Right? <laughs> Does he agree with that? If you have, you have to put it on something, even if it's the sidewalk or something. It needs something else. It's just this thing. We need one another, and that's a big trap we can fall into as believers, thinking we can do it ourselves. But like, I'm sure you guys have heard this, iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. Proverbs 27, 19 through 21. As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects man. Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. So what we're told here is our hearts reflect our true character which is truly tested in praise. There's also this idea that, you know, the Word of God is referred to as water. That's how we are looked. When we want to know where our heart's at, we look into the water of the Word, that mirror of the Word. It reflects back to us our motivations, our, the things that we may not see. That's what corrects us. But this idea of being tested in praise... And I know I've brought up a couple other Old Testament characters tonight. King Hezekiah. Does anybody remember King Hezekiah? He was a righteous king. He was one of the most godly kings in all of Judah's history. And he did a lot of great things for God. But at the end of his life, he was tested in praise. The Babylonian envoys came to his kingdom. See, God had said, you're going to die. He says, I don't want to die. I'm too rich and happy, and I want to keep living. And God said, I'll give you a sign. Do you want the sun, the shadow to go down the steps, 10 steps, or go up? Now, going up was, it meant that the earth would have to go backwards. And that's what Hezekiah asked for. So God did this great astral miracle, this cosmic work that the Babylonians noticed because they were magi and they watched the skies and they were familiar with all that stuff. Remember the magi that we're going to celebrate that came to worship Jesus were also from the east, probably from that culture. So something odd had gone on and they heard that Hezekiah was sick and this miracle was related to that. And so they showed up with gifts and he showed them everything. Check out all my riches. All my stuff, my palaces, my storehouses, everything that I've done in my life. And he showed them every single thing. And the prophet Isaiah comes and says, all that you've shown him is going to be taken away. And your sons are going to be eunuchs in the house of the king of Babylon. And he's like, as long as it doesn't happen to me. <laughs> he's just this guy. And it's the worst response. And he didn't repent at all, but he showed that his heart was really attached to this life. It was really attached to not God himself, but the, thing God had, the things that God had blessed him with, and he failed that test at the end of his life. We're told that our eyes are never satisfied. And here there are symbol of our desire and lust, again, for the things of this life, things that are destined for destruction. All that stuff that Hezekiah was showing off with the Babylonian envoys it all perished. Jesus tells us not to let our eyes or our appetites be bigger than our capacity to enjoy and digest God's provision. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? You probably know. For they 
shall be satisfied. See, our eyes are never satisfied, but our appetites can be satisfied when we hunger and thirst for the things of God. We'll end with this last passage, Proverbs 27, 23 through 27. Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. For riches do not last forever, and does a crown endure to all generations? When the grass is gone and the new growth appears and the vegetation of the mountains is gathered, the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field. There will be enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household and maintenance for your girls. When I listened to Chuck Smith teach on that, he simply said, take care of your affairs. And he moved on to the next passage. I thought, that's all on that? That's a lot in there. But I think that essentially is it. This speaks of stewardship, of humility, and a simple care for the things we've been given. Man, this culture wants us so hard to have a side hustle or three other things going on and, and doing this and doing that. And he's saying, pay attention to your herds and the flocks, the things that you have, the not being drawn away and tempted by the temporary riches and crowns of this age. Flocks and herds, lambs and goats. I don't have any of those things. You probably don't either. But they can represent our jobs, our households, as well as our calling in Him. And if we take care of those things, the promise here is there will be enough. There will be enough. If we take care of what's right under our noses, what's right in front of us, and don't let our eyes just you know, wander to, to every you know, crazy whim that we have, being drawn away again, looking for riches, looking for the, those, those honors, those crowns and accolades of the world, that's when we'll lose the simplicity of this provision here. There will be enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household and maintenance for your girls. And when I read that, I have my wife and I have two other girls in our household. One's a cat and one's a dog. <laughs> but they do take a lot of care. And I think like, yeah, that, that's, a great, that's a great promise. That's a great promise. So the Lord promises to care for us when we care for those in our charge and are simply faithful in what is right in front of us. So I'll pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Lord, let us be those again that fear you, that worship you, that love you, that we don't obey out of fear, that we obey because you loved us first, Lord. And I thank you for your sacrifice for us. I pray you would give us the courage and the ability and the desire, Lord, to sacrifice for others. I thank you for your great promises that we read of how you promise to care for us no matter what. And we give you thanks tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.